1: The unbelievable, believable case of the vanishing, reappearing Jesus of Nazareth. The unbelievable, believable case of the vanishing, reappearing Jesus of Nazareth. Open in our Father's Word to Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. This is where the case unfolds, and let's start right there with the 13th verse. That very day, Sunday... Resurrection Day, the day upon which Jesus was raised from the dead, that very day, two of them, two disciples, two followers of Jesus, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, namely the crucifixion, the rejection of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, all the things that transpired. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now this might seem a little bit unusual here in our 21st century understanding as we read through what would be the purpose of God keeping them from being able to see, but it actually ends up being advantageous for you and for me. And here we are 2,000 years or so after the fact, and if it weren't for the divine blinding of their eyes, if that did not take place, then we wouldn't be able to appreciate the rest of what we're going to read in this account. It actually benefits you and me. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he, Jesus, said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now keep in mind, the Passover had just taken place. Jesus was crucified during the Passover time. Remember when he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. So that would have meant that devout Jews from all of the region would have made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so these two disciples are asking Jesus, are you the only one? Have you had your head in the sand? Where have you been these past couple of days? Jesus has stolen the headlines. He's been rejected, he's been spat upon, he's been convicted, condemned to death, he was crucified, he died. He was buried. How can you possibly? I mean, Jerusalem is a very small place, especially during that time. You know, during David's day, during King David's day, Jerusalem was about 16 acres in size. All of Jerusalem. So today, with the 21st century understanding, we think, you know, we see a story on television, or we read something on the internet, or hear something on the radio about Jerusalem, and we think about it being a hustling, bustling metropolis, but back in this time, it was not nearly the size of what it is today. So the idea of somebody being in Jerusalem and not hearing what had happened with Jesus of Nazareth was just incomprehensible. So there's a lot of credibility here into what's taking place. They just can't understand how could you have been here during these past couple of days and not understood what happened to Jesus. Verse 19, "'He,' Jesus said to them, "'What things?' They said to him, "'Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, "'a man who was a prophet.'" That title becomes significant in our time together. "'A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word "'before God and all the people, "'and how our chief priests and rulers "'delivered him up to be condemned to death "'and crucified him. "'But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel.'" In other words, the anointed and the appointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And what should be conveyed here as a direct result of their eyes not being opened, the identity of Jesus at this point was hidden from them divinely. That helps you and it helps me understand and appreciate What a typical believer in that time, on the first day of the week, what would have been going through their mind, what would have been going through their heart, what was happening for the typical person at that particular time, on that particular day, when the tomb of Jesus was empty and the story of his resurrection was just beginning to unfold. What were they thinking? What were they contemplating? What were they wrestling with? This helps us understand. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had an understanding to a certain degree. They had a hope that Jesus was the anointed and the appointed one. What they did not understand is what you and I understand with 2020 hindsight. Being people who live in the 21st century with the word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can look back and we can understand with clarity the suffering servant aspect of Jesus of Nazareth. The suffering servant aspect. But for the believers in that day, they didn't understand what now we understand with greater clarity. So they understood the idea of Jesus being a deliverer Jesus being an anointed, the appointed of God, the Messiah, but in a limited way. And primarily their understanding of Jesus as the deliverer was wrapped up in him delivering the Jewish people from the oppression of the Romans. And so when Jesus has been rejected by the leaders of the nation of Israel, how could he possibly rule and reign if the leaders of the nation of Israel have rejected him? More importantly than that, how could Jesus, the hoped-for Messiah, the anointed and the appointed one, rule and reign over the nation of Israel and deliver the Jewish people from the oppression of the Romans if he was crucified and died? That just is not going to happen, because remember, remember, take off your 21st century vision for a moment. At this particular time, as things were unfolding, nobody, nobody, ain't nobody ever been crucified, died, and come back to life. So that's a new concept for them. And it helps us understand that throughout this whole account of the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, where Jesus interjects himself, where Jesus begins to travel with them. If you want to make the story believable, you would not include unbelievable details, unless, of course, the story were true. And this is exactly what Luke wants to help us understand, that this is actually true true stuff that we're reading about today. This is actually history that we're reading about as it unfolded. The Bible presenting real people with limited understanding in need of divine revelation. And that's true in your life and in mine. We are real people, mere mortals, in need of divine revelation and an understanding of the truths about God. Remember, what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. Your behavior is a reflection of what you really believe about God. And if your thinking about God changes and comes into alignment with the truth about God, then your lifestyle will follow. The things that we say with our mouths follow the overflow of our heart, the things that we believe, the things that we embrace. And so what Luke is doing for us, what Matthew, Mark, and John are also doing for us, they're presenting historical truths. There's nothing here in the account of Luke or in any of the Gospels that the writers want us to take as allegory. There's tremendous detail. There are tremendously unbelievable things included in their account because those unbelievable things actually occurred and therefore are believable. They were believable and they are believable. If you're going to make up a story and you want people to believe it, then for Pete's sake, make the story believable. So look what's happening here. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They caught us off guard. We weren't expecting any of this. And you see this again and again and again in Luke's account and Matthew's account, in John's account, and even in Mark's account. We see that nobody seems to be expecting things to go down the way they went down. It's incredible and yet credible. In verse 23, And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Earlier in chapter 24, remember, Luke says that there were two men in dazzling apparel. And so remember, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. The Bible interprets itself. Don't worry if you come across a passage of Scripture that you don't at first look understand or second look understand or third look understand. Keep reading, keep paying attention, keep studying, and there's a high probability that eventually the Bible will interpret itself. So there's no contradiction here whatsoever in what Luke was presenting earlier in chapter 24 when he says, two men in dazzling apparel, we find out here, that's another way of saying that there were angels bearing testimony about Jesus. Their appearance was like a mere mortal, but they weren't mere mortals. They were angels. So the Bible is the best commentary on itself. If you don't understand a section of Scripture? Keep reading, compare Scripture with Scripture, and eventually it will become clearer and clearer. This is one of the reasons why we have four gospel accounts, not just one record of the life the miracles, the teachings of Jesus, but four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so that when we compare them together and we analyze them together, we get a clearer understanding of what unfolded. Does that make sense? So the Bible is the best commentary on itself. Don't give up, don't give in, stay dedicated, pay attention, study the Scriptures, meditate on the Scriptures, and what otherwise might be fuzzy and unclear to you will have greater clarity as you become with greater tenacity and unwavering commitment a more and more dedicated student of the Word of God. That's what a disciple is in part, a student of the Word of God, the Bible. Be a student of God's Word and you will understand truths about God that will set your life free. Remember Remember, remember, remember what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. Everything else in life is an overflow and a reflection of what you really believe about God. And so one of the things that we understand here because of the divine veiling of the eyes of Cleopas and the other disciple, one of the things that we understand is that they did not have the understanding of the suffering servant aspect of the Messiah. It's one thing to want to be delivered by the Romans. It's another thing to understand you need to be delivered from your sin. We needed and we need. You needed and you might need right now, not yet experienced him this way yet, a deliverer from your sin. This is the thing that the believers in that day didn't totally understand to the same degree to which we understand it today. They understood the idea of Jesus being a deliverer from Rome, from the oppression of the Romans, but what they didn't yet understand was that Jesus, first and foremost, needed to deal with the sin issue that you have, the sin issue that I have, the idea that every single one of us is born into this world with a real problem that creates a real hindrance, a real obstacle to discovering and enjoying God. It is the fact that we are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 makes that very clear. You were dead in your trespasses and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the principality of the power of of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's a reference to the devil. You can read Ephesians chapter two on your own time and understand what your life was like before you gave your life to Christ. What your life might be like right now if you have not given your life to Christ. And so through this divine failing of the two disciples who were making their way To Emmaus, about seven and a half miles outside of Jerusalem, after the three days of all that has transpired in Jerusalem, that divine veiling helps us understand that the believers at this particular time did not understand the centrality and the importance of the suffering servant aspect of Jesus Christ. The idea that Jesus is Savior and Messiah, not first and foremost from government oppression, but first and foremost from the oppression of sin that separates us from a relationship with God. First things first. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 5, here's an Old Testament passage of Scripture, a great one to commit to memory. In understanding the role of Jesus as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, verse 5 But he, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Messiah, but he was wounded for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. This is a reference, first and foremost, to the idea of sin being likened to sickness. The idea of the suffering servant, Jesus, enduring pain and difficulty and rejection and hardship. Again, looking at all the Scriptures, studying all the Scriptures, our understanding of God becomes well-rounded. We believe truths about God that we otherwise would not understand. And one of the things that we understand from Isaiah 53, 5 is that the Messiah had to take your place and mine. Here's what it says very clearly. He was wounded for our transgressions or our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Healed of what? Not primarily and first and foremost, let's not go on a rabbit trail here, of physical disease and physical sickness, but the illness that you struggle with, the illness that I struggle with, the illness that, spiritually speaking, you are still struggling with if you have not given your life to Christ, is the illness of sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news, the gospel, the great news is that God put on Jesus every single one of your sins, every single one of my sins, so that we could have God the Father declare to us peace. That we are no longer at war with God. It's a legal pronunciation of peace. It is the ultimate pardon of pardons. You could settle any and every other issue in all of your life, but unless and until you have settled the issue of whether or not you are at peace with God through personal saving faith in Jesus Christ, the punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. Until you settle that issue, you have not settled the most important issue in all of life. Look with me at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. This is another verse of scripture to keep in mind, to commit to memory in understanding the suffering servant aspect of Jesus of Nazareth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. For our sake, he, God, he made him to be sin, Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God wow, that in Jesus, the punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. That's what was accomplished on the cross. You might have heard somebody say, well, why isn't God fair? Maybe you struggle with it yourself. I know that I have. Why isn't God fair? Think about it twice, and you'll thank Almighty God that he's not fair. The mercy and the grace of God is bigger than our understanding of fairness. The punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the beauty Of the mercy of God and the undeserved favor of God. He gives us what we don't deserve. That he gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He gives us what we don't deserve. Aren't you thankful that God is not strictly fair in the human understanding of fairness? If God were strictly fair in the human understanding of fairness, we would get our just deserts and eternity separate from God. We would be born into the world, separated from God, go through a terrible life, no matter how good we might think it might be, die physically, and then go into an eternity experiencing the second death spoken of in the book of Revelation, which is a permanent, eternal separation from God. No, God is not fair the way we look at fairness. He's merciful and gracious in that if you put your faith in Christ, he gives you something you didn't deserve, which is the righteousness of God. Wow. It is the mercy and the grace of God that Jesus took what he didn't deserve. The punishment that brought you or is about to bring you peace. The mercy and the undeserved favor of God results in a relationship with God that none of us deserves, but that God, the Father, wanted with you. He actually believes that you are lovable. God actually loves you for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only uniquely brought forth one of a kind son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You know, whoever, it doesn't matter what's in your past. What only matters is who is in your present there is nothing that can separate you, nothing that can separate me from the love of God that surpasses human intellectual insight. It's the mercy of God, the undeserved goodness of God that he gives us the righteousness we don't deserve, that Jesus took upon himself the sin penalty, the penalty for your sin and mine that he didn't deserve. All. Because God wanted closeness with you. That's proof positive of the love of God that surpasses our finite capability of grasping it. The next time you think you're a worthless piece of garbage based on how you were raised, based on the tapes that play in our minds, the lies that we believe about ourselves, we need to really stop and contemplate what the cross actually means in regard to God's statement of his love for you, his desire, his passionate, un yielding, unwavering desire to have a close, abiding relationship with you because He loves you. We should be so thankful for the mercy and the undeserved favor of God, the grace of God, which is far greater than our understanding of human fairness. No, God was not fair when He put all of the sin of the world on Jesus. No, God was not fair, humanly speaking, when he gave you the righteousness, when he gave me the righteousness that none of us deserves. All brought to us courtesy of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so what the writer of Luke's gospel is trying to help us understand through this unbelievable, believable story as he's conveying history as it actually took place. He's giving us the ability to have a virtual time capsule, to have a virtual time machine and to go back and to understand what would it have been like to be a believer during those days right after the disappearance of Jesus. Look what's unfolding here. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. In the original language, this really gets driven home. The idea that, okay, Jesus is not in the tomb. He's not there. There were angels involved. Okay, we understand that aspect, but his body is gone. What does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus' body is not there. That's what comes across there in the the final phrase of verse 24, but him they did not see. This is anticlimactic. Okay, the tomb is empty. Okay, the crucifixion. Okay, the rejection of Jesus. But where is the body of Jesus and what does this mean? Look at Jesus' response in verse 25. He said to them, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken.'" Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Notice the word necessary. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. In all of the Scriptures, an incomplete study of the Scriptures will lead you to fuzzy conclusions about Jesus Christ. And there are many who have fuzzy views, incorrect views of Jesus today, all for no other reason than they're not willing to study the scriptures. The best way to clear up fuzziness about your understanding of Jesus is to study the book about the life of Jesus. You know, it's synonymous what is used here as Luke conveys it. He did it also in Luke chapter 16 as one example of multiples. Moses and all the prophets and the scriptures. Those are synonymous. The reference to Moses is the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's considered the law of Moses. And then all of the prophets. That's not excluding the book of Psalms. It's talking about all of the Old Testament. It's synonymous to say Moses and all the prophets or to say the Scriptures. You can use those words interchangeably. And what the writer of Scripture is helping us understand is that Jesus, before he discloses who he is, as he's traveling with these two sojourners, Cleopas and another, on the road to Emmaus, about seven and a half miles, is that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus. So if you want to have the clearest understanding of who Jesus is, if you want your thinking about God to change and to conform to the truth about who Jesus is, the best thing for you to do is to be a dedicated student of the Word of God. The more you understand the nature and the character of God, the more you'll understand the ways of God, the more you will Respond with greater and greater faith. You'll understand the trustworthiness of God. You'll understand that He doesn't lie, He doesn't deceive, He doesn't mislead, and it will all be a result. Your greater faith in following God will be the result of nothing other than this is how simple it is, and yet how important it is. Your greater faith and obedience to God will be the byproduct of knowing the God. Of the Word that you're studying through the study of God's Word. By looking at the Word of God, by drinking deeply into the Word of God, you'll understand truths about God, truths about yourself, and your lifestyle can conform for the glory of God. And so this is what Jesus is doing here with these two disciples as they're traveling. He uses it as a golden opportunity to teach them about how all of the Scriptures point to Jesus. Remember that an incomplete reading of the Bible will result in fuzziness about the identity of Jesus. An incomplete reading of the Bible will result in fuzziness about the identity of Jesus. The lifestyle of a disciple, the endeavor of a disciple is to be a lifetime student in the Word of God, so that our thinking about God is, conforms to the truths about God, and as our thinking about God is transformed, guess what happens? Our lifestyles change as well. Our lifestyles are actually our reflection about what we really believe about God. In fact, the older I get, the more I realize that sin, another way of looking at sin, is temporary insanity or temporary deception. Deception. We deceive ourselves into thinking certain things about God or certain things about ourselves that we can get away with this. That it's to our advantage to disobey God. And listen, nobody's ever resisted God and come out a winner. Nobody has ever disobeyed God and been thankful in the eternal scheme of things that they disobeyed. And so I believe in my own life I know that you're like me and I'm like you. The only reason why I would do something I shouldn't do is if I don't understand that it's wrong to do or because I think that there is something untrue about the nature and the character of God or myself in comparison to that. I believe a lie, I deceive myself, and I sin. Not good. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. This is not Jesus being deceptive at all. It actually, because of Jesus' behavior here, helps us understand the truth that misery loves company. They're down and they're dejected. Their Jesus, who they were hoping would be their deliverer from the oppression of the Romans, has been crucified. They can't necessarily make ends meet, and there was something about the encouraging nature of Jesus. Something about, as we'll see in just a moment, the way Jesus, who they didn't yet know was Jesus, was talking about the scriptures that encouraged them. They wanted him to come along and to be their dinner guest. Look drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, wait a second, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now this is where Jesus seems to be crossing a line. This is etiquette 101. What are you doing? Listen, if somebody invited you to their house for dinner would you slide over into the driver's seat and take over and commandeer the dinner invitation and this is exactly what Jesus is doing he's invited as their guest when he was at the table with them he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them it's like you going over to somebody's house as their guest and then sitting down at the table grabbing everybody's hand and and you taking over and saying let's pray okay Thank you for telling us what to do. And look what happens as a result of this. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he became invisible from their sight. And he vanished from their presence. Now, again, if you want to make this story believable, could you please make it believable? Because it seems unbelievable to me. Because now Jesus is outdoing himself. Out of all the miracles, out of all the things that Jesus has taught for over three years of ministry, now... He's doing what they had never seen him do before. He makes himself invisible. That's what the word that's used here. He makes himself vanish. He disappears. What? See, what we might not understand that at first look here at Luke's gospel that becomes clearer with a deeper look at all of the gospels is that Jesus had another appointment to keep. So Jesus hightails it out of there. Look here in verse 31. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And right at the moment when they recognize who Jesus is, he vanishes from their sight because Jesus is now going to travel somehow seven and a half miles from Emmaus back to Jerusalem on that same night And he's going to end up here in John chapter 20 in verse 19. Look with me at John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, which day? Sunday, the first day of the week, resurrection day. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, you'd be afraid too. They just killed your leader. So what are they gonna do to the followers? Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Remember, the punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then a verse that we tend to overlook the significance of it because unforgiveness is so common in our culture, in our day, and in our age. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And you probably wouldn't either, unless it were divinely given to you. Eight days later, look at the specificity. His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said again, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. This is the case of the vanishing and the reappearing Jesus. There is something about the resurrected body Of Jesus that was otherworldly no mere mortal if anybody had any question about the divine nature of Jesus of Nazareth that was getting dealt a death blow right here that Jesus now although windows and doors are closed he has the ability to make himself vanish and to show up seven and a half miles in a different location in the same day, in the same evening. Because what we're seeing happen here is Jesus now beginning to reveal that he conquered death once and for all. That he, in fact, is alive, which has consequences for your life and mine. Because the question that was asked that had to be answered is, what does it all mean? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? What does the crucifixion of Jesus mean? Mean. What does it mean for my life? What does it mean for your life? What does it mean for their life? And what we understand here is that death itself was conquered. Separation from God dealt a death blow. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God the Father's seal of approval that I accept what Jesus did by dying on the cross as the penalty that you could not pay. Skin for skin, life for life, death for life, the punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. Back to Luke's gospel. In Luke 24, their eyes were opened in verse 31. They recognized him and he vanished. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Seven and a half mile trip now for these guys. They want to go back to Jerusalem because they want to do what you'll do when you really understand who Jesus is. You tell other people. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. Luke has made no mention up to this point about Jesus appearing to Peter. And so we get an understanding here from the Scriptures that they're not exhaustive necessarily. They don't provide all of the detail, but the detail that is provided there is accurate and trustworthy. And one of the things we understand is that the Lord is appearing to multiple people. Paul makes that clear in Corinthians, that the resurrected Jesus is being seen by multiple people, multiple eyewitnesses to show that death itself was conquered, that sin was dealt, the death blow, that there is now peace with God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross and nothing other needed than your personal faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's what it's about. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You know, the same thing that happens to Cleopas and the other disciple that would make them as dejected as they felt, as downcast as they were, looking down with absolute sadness, wondering what does all this mean? They were willing to take a seven and a half mile trip back to Jerusalem. That's insanity. That's insanity. 15 miles in one day for Jesus? It's all worth it when you understand who Jesus is. When we understand who Jesus is, we are willing to go places we otherwise would not go. You are the billboard for Jesus. You're the advertising campaign for Jesus of Nazareth, the vanishing, reappearing Jesus. We could spend thousands and thousands of dollars on an advertising marketing campaign to try to get other people to believe the truths about Jesus. But if your thinking about Jesus changes, if our thinking about Jesus changes, where we understand truths about him based on his word, we will become witnesses we otherwise would not be. Our lifestyles will change. Our behavior will change. And we cannot help but tell other people and be witnesses to the very things that God is doing in our lives. You don't have to be a skilled evangelist. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a paid Christian minister to be effective in your testimony for Jesus. All you need is the truth about Jesus, a personal testimony about God revealing himself to you. You have a story to tell. And it's wrapped up in the truth about who Jesus is. Now look at what Jesus is involved in here. Look with me at Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, as we've discussed. This idea of two or more witnesses comes from Deuteronomy chapter 19. Luke is presenting the credibility factor. He's speaking to people who would understand that an individual witness, that's why there are two angels, that's why there is Simeon and Anna, the prophetess early in Luke's gospel. Two witnesses, important. If you were a Jew, you would understand, well, thanks for your testimony, but where's the other witness? How do I know that this is credible? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, if we know our Bibles, we would read this in verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, 15, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And then when we read about the recovering Pharisee, the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, look at what we read here. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a credibility factor. This is a very Jewish thing that's taking place. So Luke is presenting an unbelievable Believable account of the vanishing, reappearing Jesus of Nazareth. These are the details that you wouldn't include if you were just trying to present a fictitious, a false account of Jesus, unless this stuff were really true. So we see in the scriptures again and again the idea of two witnesses being necessary to authenticate and validate the historicity, the accuracy, The authenticity of an account. You know, people have asked me even, when am I going to do a series on the book of Revelation? Probably not for a while, but I'll give you a crash course on it right here. In Revelation chapter 11, what we see. In Revelation chapter 11, there's these two witnesses. There are these two witnesses, and they seem to have an incredible similarity to two Old Testament prophets. One of whom is Elijah, who prayed and it stopped raining. Well, in Revelation chapter 11... One of those two witnesses has the ability to shut up the heavens so that it doesn't rain. And the other one of the witnesses has a striking similarity to the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, Moses. The other witness has the ability to turn water into blood and to strike the world with plagues at will. And if you read the Exodus account, you read that those were capabilities that only Moses had. And so we see the Jewishness of the book of Revelation. Not only that, and the two witnesses, see, what we see in the book of Revelation is the meat to the bones of all the Old Testament prophecies about end times, future events, the million-dollar word that's used, eschatology, things to come. So in the book of Revelation, we see the I's dotted, the T's crossed. We see the information that's provided in a foreshadowing and a looking forward to in the Old Testament. We see those things coming to fulfillment and fruition later on in the book of Revelation. And one of the things we see in the book of Revelation, amazing as it might seem, one of the things that we see is the 144,000 converts who accept Jesus as the Old Testament Messiah prophesied about in the Scriptures in Revelation chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 14, 7 and 14. See, Jehovah's Witnesses are out trying to do all that they can to ensure that they are one of the 144,000 spoken of in the book of Revelation because those are the ones, they're among those who are saved. Prince, the artist formerly known as at one point, was a Jehovah's Witness. Michael Jackson, Jehovah's Witness trying diligently to be one of the 144,000. The only problem with that is the Jewishness of the book of Revelation. If you read in chapter 7, it says that there were 12,000 from each of the tribes. 12,000 times 12, if you do the math, comes out to 144,000. And what we're seeing in the book of Revelation in chapter 7 and again in chapter 14 is the fulfillment of Romans chapter 11 where God turns his attention back to the Jewish people. We see a second Pentecost where Jewish people, Jewish people become followers and believers that Jesus is the anointed and the appointed, the Christ, the Messiah, spoken of in the Old Testament. And they are the ones who go forth and evangelize and end up completing, they end up completing the Great Commission. You know, this gospel shall be preached to all the earth, and then the end of the end will come. So in Romans chapter 11, where it says that God will turn his attention back to the Jewish people. And in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation 14, we see that God pours himself out on the nation of Israel again. It doesn't exclude them. He includes them. And God advances his agenda, his kingdom agenda. It's a beautiful, beautiful, amazing story. Now look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 in verse 1. I want to read a little bit further down here. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We've talked about that. Paul being very Jewish. Paul alluding to, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 19. And then look what he says here. A passage again to understand that Jesus absolutely did judge. That the New Testament absolutely judges. That the whole Bible is in fact the judgment of God against people whose behaviors and attitudes are contrary to him. Look what he says in Second Corinthians 13, verse 2. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. It's very important for us to understand. That the Bible does judge. It judges behavior. It judges whether or not our character is Christ like or whether it's out of whack. Now, in a similar way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look with me here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says this But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one? That sounds pretty judgmental to me. And it should to you as well. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. Again and again, we see in the scriptures, the idea of God speaking to us about his nature and his character, God speaking to us about our nature and our character and the need to change our behavior, to change our thinking, to be more Christ-like. We're living in a day and an age where reverse intolerance is the new norm. That right is called wrong, wrong is called right, The haters are considered the lovers and we who love God are considered haters for nothing other than wanting to obey the living and true God, for putting the Bible into action. The whole Bible is about a change in behavior increasing deeper and deeper and deeper changes in behavior that are the byproduct of changing our thinking about God changing our thinking about ourselves. And so it is not possible to read the Bible correctly, to pay attention while we read the Bible, and not to see significant, fundamental areas of our lives that God himself is prompting us to change. It's all about being more and more like Christ in terms of our character as the overflow of our thinking about God. And you know, as we think about God, we tell other people. As we get excited about the truth of what God has revealed to us in his word, we become like Cleopas and the other disciple. We'll we'll go the extra mile. We'll do exploits for God that otherwise are not even on our radar for nothing else other than understanding the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, and then having our hearts burn with a desire for other people to come to a fundamental understanding about those same truths.
0: You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.